Salvation Outside the Church, Tracing the History of the Catholic Response by Francis A. Sullivan, S.J. Chapter 4, Medieval Councils, Popes, and Theologians. A 9th century Saxon monk named Gottschalk, who was an avid reader of the anti-Pelagian works of St. Augustine and those of Fulgentius of Ruspe, published a work whose thesis was that since God predestined some people to eternal damnation, it could not be said that God willed the salvation of all, or that Christ had suffered for the redemption of all. Hinnemar, Archbishop of Reims, in whose diocese Gottschalk's monastery was located, summoned a local council at Quercy sur Ois in the year 849, at which Gottschalk's doctrine was condemned. However, to some of Hinnemar's contemporaries, it seemed that to condemn Gottschalk was to question the authority of St. Augustine himself. To justify the sentence against Gottschalk, Hinnemar wrote his Treatise on Predestination and Free Will, in defense of the universality of God's salvific will, and summoned a second council to decide the matter. This council, held at Quercy in 853, declared the following propositions to express the true Catholic doctrine. Almighty God wills the salvation of all without exception, even though not all are saved. The fact that some are saved is the gift of the Savior. The fact that some perish is their own just deserts. Just as there is, has been, and will be no man whose nature was not assumed by Christ Jesus our Lord, so also there is, has been, and will be no man for whom he did not suffer, even though not all are redeemed by the mystery of his passion. The fact that not all are redeemed by the mystery of his passion does not have to do with the greatness or abundance of the price paid, but with the part of the unbelievers and those who do not believe with that faith which works through love. There is little doubt that the decrees of this council reflect the doctrine of Hinnemar, which he showed, in his writings on predestination and free will, to be well founded in the teaching of the fathers, and especially in that of the bishops of Rome. If he had been aware of it, Hinnemar could also have appealed to the doctrine of the last of the doctors of the Eastern Church, St. John of Damascus, who lived in the century before Hinnemar. It was John Damascene, as he is usually called, whose distinction between the antecedent and the consequent will became the generally accepted way of reconciling the universality of God's salvific will with the fact that not all are saved. Here is how he explained the distinction. One must know that with his antecedent will, God wills that all should be saved and share his kingdom. For he did not create us in order to punish us, but being good, in order that we might partake of his goodness. However, being just, he wills that sinners be punished. The first will of God is called antecedent, that is, God's good pleasure, and proceeds from God himself. 
The second, however, called the consequent will, proceeds from our cause. This is God's will to punish us for sin, either with salutary punishment for our emendation or with reprobation to final punishment. But God does not will our sins at all, either antecedently or consequently. He only permits them to our free will. The fact that in the Eastern Church there had never been any doubt about the universality of God's salvific will, and that the controversy raised by Gottschalk in the West had been settled in favor of the doctrine of Hinamar of Reims, meant that for the medieval theologians, there was no question of returning to St. Augustine's later exegesis of 1 Timothy 2.4. His theory of a less-than-universal salvific will did not prevail to become part of the mainline Christian tradition. There was a clear consensus among medieval theologians that God's antecedent salvific will is truly universal. Another of Augustine's views, which did not survive, was that infants who died unbaptized would suffer mitigated punishment in hell for the guilt of original sin. It was St. Anselm, 1033-1109, who provided the key to the solution of this problem with his insight that original sin consists in the privation of the original justice of our first parents. From this premise, Peter Abelard, 1079-1142, drew the conclusion that the consequence of original sin for infants dying unbaptized would be simply the privation of the beatific vision and not the positive punishment due to personal sin. Abelard's conclusion was confirmed by Peter Lombard, whose Book of Sentences, completed in 1158, became the standard textbook of theology for the Middle Ages and beyond. Lombard's influence was such that his doctrine on the fate of unbaptized infants was taken up and confirmed by Pope Innocent III in a letter which he wrote to the Bishop of Arles in 1201. The Pope wrote, the punishment of original sin is the lack of the vision of God. That of actual sin is the torments of everlasting hell. After this papal approval of the medieval theologian's solution to the problem of the fate of unbaptized infants, subsequently known as the limbo solution, the rigorous doctrine of St. Augustine on this question was generally abandoned. The Catholic Church has never definitively declared the limbo solution to be the true one but it has defended it against the Jansenists, who claimed that it involved something of the heresy of Pelagianism. It is not my intention in this book to follow the further discussion among Catholic theologians of the question concerning the fate of unbaptized infants. There has been, and still is, a lively discussion of this problem, but an adequate treatment of it would unduly extend the limits of the present work. I intend to limit myself to the development of thinking about the salvation of adults who die outside the church. For this development, the significance of the rejection of St. Augustine's view that unbaptized infants would suffer the pains of hell lies in the fact that it involved a consensus among medieval theologians that God does not inflict the pains of hell for any other cause than the guilt of personal sin. As can easily be seen, this consensus also involved the rejection of St. Augustine's idea that God would condemn 
possibly for original sin alone, adults who had never had the opportunity to hear the gospel and make an act of Christian faith. The common view of medieval theologians was that the only unbelief that would warrant the pains of hell was the personal sin of infidelity. So far in this chapter, we have seen how the developments of Christian thinking, despite the massive influence of St. Augustine, involved the elimination of some elements of his theology, which constituted grave obstacles to a more positive approach to the problem of salvation for those outside the church. Of primary importance in this respect was the achievement of a consensus among medieval theologians that God's salvific will is truly universal and that he does not condemn anyone to the pains of hell who is not guilty of grave personal sin. It is time now to discuss the teaching of these medieval theologians in detail. My intention here is to limit myself to a discussion of the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas. I do not think any apology is needed for making this choice. I shall treat the thought of St. Thomas in much the same way as I treated that of St. Augustine, dividing the material into several parts according to the various aspects of the question. We shall begin by seeing how he applied the traditional axiom, no salvation outside the church. No salvation outside the church in the writings of St. Thomas. In our first chapter, we saw that one of the papal and conciliar affirmations of the axiom, no salvation outside the church, was made in the decree firmiter of Pope Innocent III at the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215. St. Thomas wrote a commentary on that decree in which he had the following to say. Next, he, Pope Innocent, comes to the article about the effect of grace. First, he speaks of the effect of grace with regard to the unity of the church, saying, There is one universal church of the faithful, outside of which no one at all is saved. Now the unity of the church primarily depends on its unity of faith, for the church is nothing other than the congregation of the faithful. Since it is impossible to please God without faith, there can be no place of salvation other than in the church. Furthermore, the salvation of the faithful is consummated through the sacraments of the church, in which the power of Christ's passion is operative. A point to note in Thomas's commentary here is that he gives reasons why there is no salvation outside the church. It is because it is only in the church that one finds the faith, and the sacraments which are the necessary means for achieving salvation. In his commentary on the book of sentences of Peter Lombard, Thomas observes, concerning the sacrament of the Eucharist, The rays of this sacrament is the unity of the church, outside of which there is neither salvation nor life. In medieval terminology, the res, reality, of a sacrament is the grace which it signifies and affects. Here again, a reason is given for the necessity of being in the church, to participate in the grace of the Eucharist. Again, the Eucharist provides the context for the application of the axiom in his commentary on the Gospel of John. He eats the body of Christ and drinks his blood spiritually, who participates in the unity of the church, which is a unity of love. He who does not eat in this way is outside the church, and consequently outside of love. For this reason, he has no life in him. In his commentary on the Apostles' Creed, explaining the article on the one church, 
Thomas says, No one ought to despise the church or allow himself to be cast out and expelled from her, because there is only one church in which men are saved, just as no one could be saved who was outside the ark of Noah. As we have seen, the analogy between the church and the ark of Noah as the sole place where salvation could be found was an ancient one, and it is not surprising that St. Thomas made use of it. It occurs again in Thomas's last work, his Summa Theologiae, where he is speaking of the Eucharist. The rays of this sacrament is the unity of the church, without which there can be no salvation. For no one can find salvation outside the church, just as there was none apart from the Ark of Noah, which signifies the church. It is noteworthy that almost every time that St. Thomas spoke of the necessity of being in the church for salvation, he explained this as based on the necessity of sharing and the means of salvation, such as faith in the sacraments. This suggests that to understand his teaching on the necessity of the church, we should begin by seeing how he explained the necessity of Christian faith and baptism for salvation. We shall begin with his treatment of the necessity of faith in Christ. St. Thomas on the Necessity of Faith in Christ St. Thomas followed St. Augustine in holding that salutary faith had always, in some sense, been faith not only in God, but also in Christ as the one mediator of salvation. However, an important development in Thomas's understanding of this was his recognition that faith in the one mediator could be implicitly contained in that faith in God, which is described in Hebrews 11.6. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. In fact, Thomas held that all the articles of faith are implicitly contained in this verse of scripture, which speaks of God's existence and his providence for the salvation of humanity. As he explained it, the truth that God exists implicitly includes everything pertaining to the divine being, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him includes everything that pertains to the economy of salvation. Since the economy of salvation includes Christ as mediator of salvation for mankind, St. Thomas understood faith in God as rewarder, faith in divine providence, implicitly to include faith in Christ. As we shall see, Thomas admitted that in some cases, a faith in Christ that was only implicit could suffice. However, referring to faith in the existence and providence of God as described in Hebrews 11.6, he declared, It must be said that in every age and for everyone, it has always been necessary to believe explicitly in these two things. It was an absolute principle with St. Thomas that no one has ever been saved without faith in the existence and providence of God. It was likely an absolute principle with him that no one has ever had the grace of the Holy Spirit except through faith in Christ, either explicit or implicit. The question then is, for whom and under what conditions would merely implicit faith in Christ suffice? First, St. Thomas admitted the sufficiency of such implicit faith in Christ for Gentiles before the Christian era, if not for all of them, at least for the ordinary folk to whom no revelation of the future Messiah had come. Thomas believed that many of the Gentiles had received revelations about Christ. 
However, he added, if some Gentiles were saved without receiving any revelation about Christ, they were not saved without faith in the mediator, because even though they did not have explicit faith, they did have a faith that was implicit in their faith in divine providence, believing that God is the liberator of mankind in ways that he himself chooses. In other words, for most Gentiles who were saved before the coming of Christ, implicit faith in Christ had sufficed. St. Thomas admits the sufficiency of such faith also in the case of the centurion Cornelius, who, before he had heard the gospel from St. Peter, was already pleasing to God. Thomas explains, At that time, Cornelius was not an unbeliever, else his works would not have been acceptable to God whom none can please without faith. However, he then had implicit faith in Christ when the truth of the gospel had not yet been manifested to him. Hence, Peter was sent to him to give him full instruction in the faith. Thus, for St. Thomas, implicit faith in Christ sufficed not only for Gentiles who lived before the coming of Christ, but also for Cornelius who lived after the coming of Christ but had not yet heard the gospel preached. This raises an interesting question. How long did such a possibility last for people who had not yet heard the gospel? Cornelius was in a unique position, being the first Gentile to whom the gospel was announced. Did St. Thomas believe that in his own day there were still people to whom the gospel had not yet been announced? And if so, did he believe that for them, too, implicit faith in Christ would suffice for justification? There are several elements in his writings that have to be taken into consideration with regard to this question. St. Thomas on the Necessity of Explicit Christian Faith While St. Thomas allowed for the sufficiency of implicit faith in Christ before the gospel had been promulgated, he was categorical in asserting the necessity of explicit Christian faith in his own day. After grace had been revealed, all, both the learned and the simple, are bound to have explicit faith in the mysteries of Christ, especially with regard to those mysteries which are publicly and solemnly celebrated in the church such as those which refer to the mystery of the Incarnation. How absolute his conviction was on that score is illustrated by the response which he gave to the problem raised by the possibility that even in his own day there might be someone who had had no chance to hear the message about Christ. His response, that God would provide the means by which such a person could arrive at explicit faith in Christ, shows how exceptionless he believed the necessity of that faith to be. On the other hand, his response also involved his conviction about the universality of God's salvific will. We shall first see how he expressed his conviction about this, and then see how he applied this principle to the problem posed by those who had no opportunity to believe in Christ since the gospel had never been preached to them. St. Thomas on the Universal Salvific Will of God With medieval theologians generally, St. Thomas took seriously the universality of God's salvific will, understanding this to mean that God offers the grace necessary for salvation to everyone who does not personally put an obstacle in the way. Here are some texts of St. Thomas on this point. In those things which are necessary for salvation— 
God is never wanting and has never been wanting to a person who is seeking his salvation, unless this was due to the person's own fault. It belongs to divine providence to provide for each person what is necessary for salvation, unless the obstacle comes from the person himself. Since the ability to impede or not to impede the reception of divine grace is within the scope of free choice, not undeservedly is responsibility for the fault imputed to him who offers an impediment to the reception of grace. In fact, as far as he is concerned, God is ready to give grace to all. Indeed, he wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, as is said in 1 Timothy. But those alone are deprived of grace who offer an obstacle within themselves to grace, just as, while the sun is shining on the world, the man who keeps his eyes closed is held responsible for his fault, if, as a result, some harm follows, even though he would not be able to see unless he were provided in advance with light from the sun. It belongs to the mercy of him who wills that all should be saved, that, in those things that are necessary for salvation, a person should easily find the remedy. In the above texts, we see that the universality of God's salvific will means concretely that God offers the grace necessary for salvation to everyone who does not put an obstacle in the way through personal faults. The same idea is put more succinctly by Aquinas and the other medieval theologians with their axiom, Facienti quod in se est, Deus non denegat gratiam. To one who does what lies in his power, God does not deny grace. We must now see how Aquinas applied it to the case of a person who had no opportunity to hear the Christian message and arrive at the explicit faith in Christ, without which he held that no one in his own day could be justified and saved. The Problem of People Who Had Not Heard the Gospel Along with other medieval theologians, St. Thomas, at least in his earlier writings, presumed that practically everyone had had an adequate opportunity to hear the Christian message, so that a case of truly invincible ignorance of the basic elements of Christian faith would be very rare indeed. Needless to say, we have to try to grasp the mentality of medieval Christians whose vision was circumscribed by the limits of the world known to them. In this world, they knew that, besides Christians, there were also Jews and Moslems. But they believed that both Jews and Moslems had heard enough about Christ so that they could not claim the excuse of invincible ignorance for their lack of faith in him. Medieval Christians could hardly conceive of anyone being completely ignorant about Christ, unless it were a person totally isolated from the civilized world. And so the problem about the salvation of a person who had heard nothing about Christ was presented by medieval theologians as the case of a child who had been brought up in the wilderness or among brute beasts. St. Thomas's conviction that, on the one hand, explicit faith in Christ was necessary, and, on the other, that God would not leave a sincere person without the means necessary for his salvation, led him to offer the following solution to this case. 
the exposition of what must be believed for salvation would be provided to that person by God, either by a preacher of the faith, as in the case of Cornelius, or by a revelation, so that it would then be within the power of the free will to make an act of faith. If anyone were brought up in the wilderness or among brute animals, provided that he followed his natural reason in seeking the good and avoiding evil, we must most certainly hold that God would either reveal to him by an inner inspiration what must be believed, or would send a preacher to him as he sent Peter to Cornelius. In his commentary on Romans, St. Thomas brought up the same case, but did not mention the possibility that God would provide by way of revelation or inspiration. Here he said only that God would send someone to preach the gospel to such a person brought up in the wilderness, provided that he were doing what he could with the grace he received from God. Finally, in the Summa Theologiae, we find a different treatment of the problem. Here there is no mention of the child brought up in the wilderness but in general terms of those who have heard nothing about the faith. What is more important in the Summa, which is the most mature work of St. Thomas, there is no mention of the idea that if such people were doing what lay in their power, God would surely provide the means whereby they would be given the opportunity to come to explicit faith in Christ. Here the solution seems to be a more Augustinian one. In fact, a work of St. Augustine is cited as the authority for it. To the objection that people who have not had a chance to hear the gospel cannot be obliged to have explicit faith, Thomas replies, Man is obliged to do many things that he cannot do without healing grace, such as to love God and his neighbor, and likewise to believe articles of faith. Now, to whom the divine help is given, it is given out of God's mercy, and to whom it is denied, it is denied out of his justice as a punishment for previous sin, at least original sin, as Augustine says in his book De Corruptione et Gratia. The idea that God could justly deny necessary grace as a punishment for personal sin is merely the reverse of the axiom that God does not deny grace to one who does what is in his power to do, but that God could justly deny necessary grace as a punishment for original sin alone is quite a different idea, which St. Thomas derived from one of St. Augustine's anti-Pelagian works, with which he became more acquainted in the course of his career. This has led to speculation whether Thomas, when writing the Summa, may no longer have been confident that God would send a preacher to provide that a person who was doing what lay in his power would not lack the possibility of coming to explicit faith in Christ. J. D. Goubert suggested that in the course of his life, Thomas may have come to realize that not only the rare child brought up in the wilderness, but whole nations still had never heard the gospel preached, and that to solve the problem he resorted to the Augustinian solution, that their ignorance of the gospel could be understood as a punishment for sin, at least original sin. However, other Thomistic scholars have rejected de Goubert's theory, noting that in his commentary on Romans, from the same period as the Summa, St. Thomas still proposed the more positive solution, which shows that he continued to maintain his conviction about the universality of God's salvific will. We have also quoted a text from the Summa, which asserts that because it is God's will that all be saved, 
It belongs to his mercy to provide that. And those things are necessary for salvation. A person will easily find the remedy. At the same time, de Goubert has raised an interesting question as to whether St. Thomas, during his career, came to realize that there were nations to whom the gospel had still not been preached. St. Thomas on the knowledge of the gospel in his day. The common assumption of medieval theologians seems to have been that the gospel had been preached everywhere and that it would be only the rare exception, the child brought up in the wilderness, if someone had not heard about Christ. But there are some reasons to think that Aquinas may have come to know that this was not so rare. First of all, in the 13th century, Franciscan and Dominican missionaries had penetrated quite far into Asia, and Marco Polo came back from China. However, St. Thomas makes no reference to this in his writings. On the other hand, in his commentary on Psalm 48, he says, Faith in Christ flourishes principally among the people of the West, because in the northern regions there are still many Gentiles, and in the eastern lands there are many schismatics and infidels. The word still, ad hoc, in reference to the Gentiles of the northern regions, suggests that these people are still pagans, while the infidels in the eastern lands are more likely to be the Moslems. Now our question is, did Thomas think of those Gentiles of the northern regions as people to whom the gospel had not yet been preached? A contemporary Dominican named Humbert of the Romans also spoke of pagans to be found in the northern regions, referring to them as idol worshippers, called Fiteni, whose conversion was hoped for. To the question whether, by his own day, the gospel had been preached everywhere in the world, St. Thomas gave a nuanced answer, distinguishing between the renown, notitia, or fama, of Christ, which had penetrated every region of the world, and the preaching of the gospel with full effect, which involved the establishment of the church. St. Thomas held that the latter had not yet been accomplished everywhere, and that its accomplishment was a condition to be fulfilled before the final coming of the kingdom of God. St. Thomas further nuanced his opinion by saying that, while the renown of the gospel had reached all nations, that did not mean that it had reached every individual. There might be some who, like the child brought up in the wilderness, had heard nothing at all about Christ. In his commentary on Romans, as we have seen, he added that to such individuals, if they were doing what lay in their power, God would send a preacher. It seems clear that when St. Thomas spoke of people who had heard nothing about Christ, he was thinking of isolated individuals rather than of whole nations since he held that the renown of the gospel had actually penetrated to all nations by his day. Presumably, then, he thought that it had also reached those Gentiles of the northern regions of whom he spoke in his commentary on Psalm 48. Did he think that most of them, with perhaps a few isolated exceptions, had heard enough about Christ so that their unbelief in him was culpable? It must be admitted that we do not find a clear answer to this question in the writings of St. Thomas, but perhaps some light can be thrown on it by a consideration of his teaching about the various kinds of unbelief. St. Thomas's Treatment of Unbelief, Infidelitas 
It would seem that for Aquinas, the only kind of unbelief that would not be culpable would be that of a person who had heard nothing about the faith. He explains, Unbelief may be taken in two ways. First, by way of pure negation, so that a man can be called an unbeliever merely because he does not have faith. Secondly, unbelief may be taken by way of opposition to the faith, in which sense a person refuses to hear the faith or despises it, according to Isaiah 53, 1. Who hath believed our report? It is this that completes the notion of unbelief, and it is in this sense that unbelief is a sin. If, however, we take it by way of pure negation, as we find it in those who have heard nothing about the faith, it bears the character not of sin but of punishment, because such ignorance of divine things is a result of the sin of our first parent. Such unbelievers are damned on account of their other sins, which cannot be taken away without faith, but not on account of the sin of unbelief. From this, it would seem that for St. Thomas, it is only a person who has heard nothing about Christ, whose lack of Christian faith will be inculpable. Such a person would not be damned for lack of faith, but for personal sins, which cannot be taken away without faith. Does this mean that everyone lacking faith would inevitably be damned for personal sins? Or would St. Thomas still admit that an individual whose lack of faith was inculpable might do what lay in his power, and that to such an individual God would provide the means by which he could arrive at an act of saving faith? Again, we note the failure of the text of the Summa to mention this more optimistic solution of which he had spoken elsewhere. In any case, the lack of Christian faith on the part of anyone who had heard about Christ would involve the sin of unbelief, of which Thomas distinguishes three kinds. Since the sin of unbelief consists in rejection of the faith, it can take place in two ways. Either one rejects the faith that has never been accepted, and this is the unbelief of pagans or Gentiles, or one rejects Christian faith that was once accepted. Either it was accepted in its prefiguration, in figura, and this is the unbelief of the Jews, or it was accepted in the very manifestation of the truth, and this is the unbelief of heretics. There can be no doubt about the fact that St. Thomas judged all Jews and heretics to be guilty of sinful unbelief, along with Gentiles, such as the Moslems, who were thought to have heard enough about the Christian religion to be guilty of rejecting it. He went on to distinguish degrees of gravity of this sin, arguing that the sin of Christian heretics was the gravest of all. On the other hand, he recognized that ignorance diminishes the gravity of the sin of unbelief, as we see in the following remark. Unbelief includes both ignorance, as an accessory thereto, and resistance to matters of faith, and in the latter respect it is a most grave sin. In respect, however, of this ignorance, it is a certain reason for excuse, especially when a man sins not from malice. As we have already seen, St. Thomas recognized the possibility that someone might be so totally ignorant of the faith that his unbelief would be simply inculpable. At the same time, it seems clear that he shared with his contemporaries 
the view that no Jews or Muslims would have such an excuse or would escape the just condemnation for their rejection of the Christian faith. It will be recalled that at the beginning of our treatment of St. Thomas, we noted that he based the necessity of being in the church on the necessity of faith and sacraments. Having at some length considered his doctrine regarding the necessity of faith for salvation, we can be more brief in our treatment of his teaching about the necessity of the sacraments. We begin with the sacrament of baptism. St. Thomas on the necessity of baptism for salvation. St. Thomas bases this necessity on the nature of baptism as the sacrament of incorporation into Christ. To the question whether all are bound to receive baptism, he replies, I answer that men are bound to that without which they cannot obtain salvation. Now it is manifest that no one can obtain salvation except through Christ. The purpose for which baptism is conferred on a man is that being regenerated thereby, he may be incorporated in Christ, being made one of his members. Consequently, it is manifest that all are bound to be baptized, and that without baptism there is no salvation for anyone. However, the next article shows that it is possible to attain salvation without having actually received the sacrament of baptism. To the question whether a person can be saved without baptism, he replies, The sacraments of baptism may be wanting to someone in two ways. First, both in reality and in desire, et re et voto, as is the case with those who neither are baptized nor wish to be baptized, which clearly indicates contempt of the sacrament in regard to those who have the use of free will. Consequently, those to whom baptism is wanting thus cannot obtain salvation, since neither sacramentally nor mentally are they incorporated in Christ through whom alone can salvation be obtained. Secondly, the sacrament of baptism may be wanting to someone in reality, but not in desire. For instance, when someone wishes to be baptized, but by some ill chance is overtaken by death before receiving baptism. Such a person can obtain salvation without being actually baptized on account of the person's desire for baptism, which desire is the outcome of faith that works through charity whereby God, whose power is not tied to visible sacraments, sanctifies a person inwardly. From this we see that while incorporation into Christ is necessary for salvation, this incorporation may take place mentally, through a desire for baptism that is based in faith and charity. Furthermore, St. Thomas teaches that the desire for baptism, which can suffice for the forgiveness of sins, can be either explicit or implicit. To the objection that baptism is not necessary, since one can already have obtained the forgiveness of sins before being actually baptized, St. Thomas replies, A person receives the forgiveness of sins before baptism insofar as he has baptism of desire, explicitly or implicitly. And yet, when he actually receives baptism, he receives a fuller remission, for the remission of the entire punishment. So also Cornelius and others like him receive grace and virtues through their faith in Christ and their desire for baptism, implicit or explicit. But afterwards, when baptized, they receive a yet greater fullness of grace and virtues. 
we can presume that when St. Thomas speaks of an implicit desire for baptism, what he has in mind is that the dispositions of faith and charity which a person possesses conform his will to the will of God in his regard. Thus, even though he does not know that the will of God includes his baptism, his disposition of soul implicitly embraces that object also. We shall now see that Thomas takes a similar approach to the question of the necessity of receiving the Eucharist for salvation. St. Thomas on the Necessity of the Eucharist for Salvation To the question whether the Eucharist is necessary for salvation, he replies, Two things have to be considered in this sacrament, namely the sacrament itself and what is contained in it. Now, the res of the sacrament, that is, the grace signified and affected by it, is the unity of the mystical body, without which there can be no salvation. For there is no entering into salvation outside the church, just as in the time of the deluge there was none outside the ark of Noah, which denotes the church. As it has been said above, prior to the reception of a sacrament, its res can be had by the very desire, ex ipso voto, of receiving the sacrament. Hence, before actual reception of this sacrament, a person can obtain salvation through the desire of receiving it, just as one can before baptism, through the desire of baptism. An interesting point of St. Thomas's teaching on the desire for the Eucharist is that he attributes such a desire to children by reason of their having been baptized. Because by baptism one is ordered toward the Eucharist, it follows that children by the fact of being baptized, are ordered by the church toward the Eucharist. Therefore, just as they believe through the church's faith, so they desire the Eucharist through the church's desire, and as a result, receive its grace. Having seen how St. Thomas understood Christian faith and sacraments as necessary means for salvation, we shall now consider the element of his teaching that seems most favorable to modern theories of salvation for those who lack these means. St. Thomas on justification through one's first moral decision. St. Thomas proposes this idea when giving his answer to the question whether it would be possible for a person to commit a venial sin while still in the state of original sin. He replies that this cannot happen. First, because one cannot sin even venially before reaching the use of reason. Secondly, when a person reaches the age of reason, he is not at all excused from the guilt of venial or mortal sin. But the first thing that occurs to him to think about is to make a decision about himself. If he orders himself toward the proper end, through grace he will obtain the remission of original sin. But if he does not order himself toward the proper end, to the extent that at his age he is capable of this decision, he will sin mortally through failing to do what lies in his power to do. Several points are worth noting on this. The person envisioned in this article is someone who reaches the age of reason still unbaptized, since if he had been baptized, he would not be in the state of original sin. But in medieval times, children of Christian parents were baptized as infants. Was this child then brought up by infidels? Would he have been capable of making an act of faith in Christ? And how could he have attained justification, the remission of original sin, 
without faith in Christ? Is this person like the well-known child brought up in the wilderness who would have to be enlightened before he could make an act of saving faith? As we know, Thomas held that this had to be explicit faith in Christ. It is puzzling that with regard to this person who arrives at justification through his first moral decision, aided, of course, by grace, there is no mention of the necessity of an act of faith. Are we to presume that Thomas takes this for granted and does not bother mentioning it? It would certainly be a singular lack of consistency in the thought of St. Thomas if he allowed the possibility of justification without the explicit Christian faith which he so emphatically declared to be absolutely necessary for all in his day. Perhaps he implied it in the reference to the grace through which the person would obtain the remission of original sin. It would seem that in the act whereby the person ordered himself toward God, one should also recognize an implicit desire of baptism, which would be necessary for the attainment of justification and one who is not baptized. While it does leave a number of questions unanswered, this answer which St. Thomas gave to the question of whether a person could commit a venial sin while still in the state of original sin has become the foundation of several modern theories about the possibility of salvation for those outside the church. We shall discuss such theories later on in this book. We can conclude this chapter by noting three points in the teaching of St. Thomas, which would eventually prove helpful to Catholic theologians in their efforts to solve the new problems they had to face when it became known that there were vast continents whose inhabitants had never before heard the gospel preached. The first of these ideas is Thomas's notion of a faith in Christ that is implicitly contained in the faith in God that is described in Hebrews 11.6. The second is his recognition of the sufficiency of an implicit desire, votum, for baptism and the Eucharist when these sacraments cannot be received in reality, in re. And the third is his teaching on justification through a person's first moral decision. In the following chapters, we shall see how the Dominicans of Salamanca and the Jesuits of the Roman College made good use of these ideas that they found in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas.